Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. I'm here today with Dr. Manusha Khorasani, who is a museum analyst, author of many books and over 180 articles on Persian archery and swordsmanship, the historical martial arts of Iran. He has a book called The Lexicon of Arms and Armour from Iran, and he's also a highly skilled practical martial artist. I've actually watched him teach and spar, and let's just say I have no interest in actually fighting him ever. You can find him online at https www.moshtagkhorasani, that's M-O-S-H-T-A-G-H-K-H-O-R-A-S-A-N-I.com, where you'll find a really extraordinary range of articles and resources on Persian martial arts. So, without further ado, Manusha, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Guy. I'm really happy to be on your podcast. It's a very nice honor to be here. Oh, thank you. Uh, now, whereabouts in the world are you at the moment? Um, I live in Germany, Frankfurt, Germany. Okay. Uh, what brought you there? Uh, I have been living here for a long period of time, actually. Mm-hmm. I went to university here in Germany, so I'm German-educated and American-educated. So I studied mm-hmm. both in the United States and Germany. So then I ha- found a job here, got stuck, got married, and, uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> I live here. <laughs> right. Yeah, fair enough. And um, I'm right in thinking that you're sort of, your main actual job is not researching Persian martial arts. Is that correct? Uh, my main job, I mean, I have been teaching for the last uh, five years as a professor and lecturer at uh, two universities. Actually, there are very good universities in the area of business administration and um, business administration and also leadership studies. Where I, what I teach at master's levels now, which I also supervise many theses. I think so far I have almost supervised almost yeah, 30, maybe 28, I don't remember. It's all on my web page. Uh, the areas what I teach is intercultural management, cross-cultural leadership, they're very related, and as well, mm-hmm. well as ethical leadership and intercultural relationships. So my, my job is analyzing countries, culture of different countries, comparing them to each other, behavior, cultural behavior, and accordingly prepare my students and sometimes executives to do that. Before and at the same time, I'm a consultant for a number of leading um, European, including British uh, law firms and American law firms and investment companies, again, in the areas of intercultural management, in the areas of cross-cultural leadership and ethical leadership and CSR, corporate social responsibility. These are these areas I I teach and do research and supervise my students. And from time to time, for example, I also write articles in these areas, you know, but because I write academic articles and if you're a researcher and you write academic articles, you get credit points. So it's basically I get credit points when I publish lots of academic articles also in the area of history and archaeology. So, oh, I see. So, yeah. so your historical martial arts articles kind of count towards your mainstream career. Yeah, because I don't only okay. talk, as you know, write about martial arts. I also write about uh, crucible steel or steel production. I write about archery, how bows were made. I also write about uh, different types of real uh, weapons and weapon, let's say, components, how they made them. 
And uh, this is also my main area of research, and which was, and then uh, after that, accordingly, martial arts, right? Not only, I don't only write about martial arts, but weapon analysis, history of weapons, decorations. That's why I also work for auction houses from time to time, also for many private collectors to identify antiques. And that's the, what it comes as well to that. Okay, so I guess my, my obvious question there is, how on earth do you have time for like a proper career and all of this research into weapons and um, martial arts and what have you? Well, um, I mean, I don't know how to say it, you know, because, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know what to say. You know, maybe, okay, I have a very, let's put it this way, like an iron discipline, if I may. <laughs> okay, this yeah, way. sure. I, uh, I, uh, for example, I don't know if it's an, it's a virtue or is, I mean, I, I, for example, to begin with, I don't sleep so much. I sleep five to six hours a night. Okay. That's it. What I do. So, because it's not because I force myself because I don't need to. So everybody right. is different. Sure. Right. And this includes the weekends and this includes also when I'm on vacation. Ah, uh, okay. So you have a couple of hours <laughs> extra per day, All right? Put it this way. I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying, again, I, again, I repeat, I'm not saying it's a virtue, but that's mm. what I do. And besides that, I, um, yeah, I just uh, keep doing these things. And I believe, I believe um, if you like something and if one is focused, you can uh, concentrate on different things and do, I mean, I don't see them as separate. For example, weapon analysis, for example, Weapon analysis and uh, martial arts are not separated. Sure. But at the same time, at the same time, for example, intercultural management, let's put it this way. We, we analyze cultures. Let's say, if I may talk about it a bit, for example, Please. if I compare, if I compare, for example, let's compare um, culture of United States, right? Let's mm -hmm. compare germ, uh, culture of United States to German culture, right? And we go and analyze politics business atmosphere, economics, micro and macro. Then we analyze the effects of movie industry on the, you know, it's like tactics of inclusion, exclusion. What most people, the media, because people always think they're individualistic, but we know they're not. They're influenced in every culture. Sure. We are all influenced by the media, also by education, by our parents. So it's basically the culture, the way I teach is different cultures affect the members of that culture, the majority of them. And mm -hmm. to that, military is one of them. Military, military history, the weapon technology. So actually, if you look at it in a holistic view, you can see them all interrelated. Right. And that's the way I look at the whole thing. Yeah. You know, people don't understand why I, I'm a woodworker and a martial artist, and I don't actually see them as being fundamentally different. Yeah. Because they are... You have an idea for how the world should be and you apply your skills with sharp objects to create that new reality. And that's Absolutely. the same whether you're playing a piece of wood smooth or swinging a sword through the air. It's not actually, in my head, it's not fundamentally different. I agree, I agree with you. I mean, I was just talking to one of our colleagues, you know, and he's uh, doing uh, Georgian swordsmanship and then he said he had a very, very good point of view and I completely agree. The more I do martial arts, the more I understand there is only one. <laughs> they are so similar, <laughs> right. you know, similar to each other, right? It's just really interesting to watch that. Yeah, see, it's one of those things where I think for a beginner, it's really useful to really focus on the distinctions because, yes. you know, the way you throw a punch in karate is not the same as the way you throw a punch in boxing. And, you know, 
some of the Japanese swordsmanship actions are different to the European medieval swordsmanship actions, which are other, would otherwise you'd think would be similar, right? But once you once you've sort of once you've learnt your own language, and then you've learnt another language, you then realise actually how much they have in common. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I th- it's it's like that. That it's it's useful to keep them distinct, but once you get to a certain point, you then see all of these similarities between them, and the distinctions kind of become sort of academically interesting, but not terribly relevant. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, I, I've I've always had this thing with you know, I go to martial arts schools of all different kinds, and you know have a go, and you know go through whatever the forms or technical exercise or whatever that the teacher is teaching. And it's like, oh, this is interesting. And very often I'll end up having a conversation with the teacher who'll say, you've done some stuff before, but not this. What have you been doing? And then I'll say, well, actually, I you know, do some you know, medieval Italian stuff and whatever. And then we get into a conversation about it. And it turns out that, yes, the distinctions are interesting, but the, the things that are in common are really fundamental. So I have to ask, how did you get into the whole historical martial arts thing? What, what made you want to start researching? You know, I started, for example, at the uh, at the very young age uh, with wrestling, and also many people know, for example, from my videos, um, I have I had also black belt in Kyokushin just recently. I passed my second dan in Kyokushin, which which is bare knuckle and very tough uh, style of karate. I did it under Shihan Nazari. I'm preparing for my third dan in black belt Kyokushin, which is I'm going to pass. Due to corona, I'm just waiting, so it's over. I'm going to take right. this exam. And I'm also, I have been a practitioner of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for years. I'm going to pass my black belt again after corona. And I am also, I started a couple of years ago, for example, to add Wing Chun, Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm going to pass my instructor level in Wing Chun next to wrestling. So I'm, I have, you know, put it this way. I was in martial arts. I did kickboxing, Muay Thai next to Kyokushin and uh, wrestling and BJJ. Then I, in between, I started to do historical martial arts. The last two years, I didn't stop doing historical martial arts, but I concentrated more on karate Kyokushin because I want to pass my sec- third dan in black belt and I want to pass my Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt and these things. So I concentrated on this. Not that I didn't. The reason I did it, if you wish, I can say why. But now I'm back again into historical martial arts. I, my team has been always there. But if you guys wants me, want me to explain why I can, if not, we we'll, can just... We'll, okay, we'll, we'll get that in a minute. But um, before we go there... So you're doing these established martial arts, Kyokushinkai yeah. Karate, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or whatever. What made you want to look at the historical sources and start doing historical research? What, what was it that you weren't getting in your martial arts life at that point that okay. made you look? My plan was the following, that uh, I, I was always in love because of uh, you know Japanese martial arts. Okay, I did mm-hmm. also, I still do Iaijitsu next to Kyokushin. Everyone in Japanese martial arts also does some Iaijitsu, and uh, specifically Katori, which I'm very interested in. But then, mm-hmm. I, then, as a matter of fact, I was always interested, or have been interested, actually, in Nihonto, Japanese swords, right? Mm-hmm. So I also know quite a, quite a knowledge on Japanese Nihonto classification. And um, then m- many years ago, before my first book, Arms and Armor from Iran, was published in 2006, it was that I, um, I um, 
years before that, I was in, in I saw a shamshir, Persian shamshir, and I looked at the blade and I just said, oh, what kind of blade? And I found that, right, okay, these are not folded, they are um, crucible steel. Yeah. And, and, you know, like Japanese Nihonto, I know many people or martial artists look at Japanese Nihonto or Persian blades as um, only weapons, but if you are a collector, or if you are a collector of these items, they are the most expensive swords anyhow, if you want to buy, because the blades are pieces of art, actually. It's like right. a painting. It's not only, I mean, they are weapons, of course, but people who collect them don't look at them as, we as weapons, right? Especially, they look at them so. as pieces of art, like Picasso, like this. So that's the appreciation I knew from Nihonto. And then I started to appreciate them, and then I realized that Persian, Persians, Iranians contributed a lot, and, and then it's the more I read, the more I was fascinated by these plates. And then, um, then I realized that um, the, the one should go and do research. What I back then found out was that, um, especially collectors in the West, so I spent almost all my life uh, outside Iran in the West, be it now Germany or United States. But then I realized that most of these, back then there were some articles here and there under Islamic arms, arms and armor, excuse me, mm -hmm. Islamic arms and armor, and Persian was some parts of it. And I realized they only talk about um, museums, collections in United States or Europe, mostly Western Europe. My first question was, why didn't they go to Iran? Right? <laughs> why not? Yeah. Exactly. Presumably that most of them will be there. Right, exactly. And then when yeah. I asked, and there was some, I don't know how to put it, there, were some, there was a shared opinion, again, back to tactics of inclusion, exclusion of culture, shared opinions, when we build up groups, we mm -hmm. start to share, and everyone goes with the wind. Oh, no, those guys do not keep that, you know, they just kept insulting, or this was like that. But I said, look, first of all, Persia, Iran was not a colony, like, like for mm -hmm. a long period of time. So I cannot believe that. So I, when I went to Iran, it was... Uh, after actually many years, because I was not there for many, many years, when mm -hmm. I went, went back there, mesmerized by the culture of everyone is, and by people, very friendly. And then what I saw there was that in Military Museum of Tehran, they had the collections of one of the Persian kings, Nasiruddin Shah from Qajar, but he had collected them over centuries. And then they were, I found out they were distributed into Military Museum of Bandar Ansali in the north, Military Museum of Shiraz. So then I wanted to have a permission, but then it's military because it was under the military. So I just, you know what I did? I uh, wrote a, a letter to them, said I'm here and, and my specialty is Nihonto and I would like to do research on that. And everyone was telling me, you cannot do that because you had not been into this country for such a long time as a kid, you left. Now you come back right to the headquarters. But what I believe, what I believe is once you go to the source, once you go to the top, you gain what you want. Right. And I knew that already. And don't listen to people. So I did. I just back then, and you're going to be, the only thing I had back then was a fax number. So I wrote something and I faxed it. I remember. <laughs> Can wow, you imagine? That's, back that's then, a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, long time ago. It was just, it was like 2001 or two, right? Yeah. That was a long time ago. And I wrote it, and then I got a telephone call two hours after by the head of military museums of Iran. <laughs> okay. And he, he invited me to talk to them, so I went, and he was a researcher, Iranian studies researcher, very ni nice man, very friendly man, asked about this, and I tried to explain to him. And he said, okay, he cannot make a decision right now. Of course, you cannot do that. 
and how long I would wanted to stay. I said, yeah, only like a couple of days more. And then I went back, right? Went back to Germany because of my job and all these things. Mm -hmm. Then they invited me back again. Then they opened the museums. I analyzed uh, like hundred species uh, in all museums. And they have not only Persian, they have also many Russian, European collections, the swords of sure. the kings given to them. You can imagine, yeah. Indians, yeah. Europeans, all top quality. So I analyzed them. Then I went to lots of writings. I went to Persian original manuscripts on sword classification. Back then, my idea was not martial arts. Although I knew, I knew as a wrestler, Iran has over 22 indigenous martial arts, um, which have survived. Some of them are with striking, right. bare-knuckle strikes, fight, you know, kicks, and also punches. So I knew that already. And I knew that there was not a classification per se of them. I did some classification and some of them published as academic articles of uh, techniques. I'm not finished with that. But then um, I started to do that. Then I, we know that we have House of Strengths, which they trained with all those nice items. Clubs. Right? Right? Yeah. Like in, in the, we call them Indian clubs, but really they're probably Persian. Yeah, they're Persian, actually. <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. Yeah. And then... Uh, yeah, so I started uh, I mean, do, doing research first only, uh, only on sword classification, which was my first book, Arms and Armor from Iran, which is like 800 pages. It's a huge book. I spent yes. many years on that. And then after that, I realized I need to find lexicon because, and then I fished um, uh, over, fi yes, uh, over 5,000 different entries on uh, arms and armor from old Persian. Iran is an old country. Jirov showed us mm -hmm. it's not only 5,000, but 7,000 years Persian culture. So what we, I started to have old Persian, middle Persian, Avestan language, I mean, mm -hmm. the holy language, and then new Persian from the 10th century, uh, finding all words and classification of words. And then in original, because Persian script went into four levels, four different scripts. And I wrote the Persian scripts in front of it. And because I'm also um, I'm trained also not only in business administration, but also in English linguistics. So I know how to classify languages. Mm -hmm. So I uh, classified them meaning. And when I was doing this meaning, for example, Shamshir, I realized uh, there's, there's some consistency, for example, and then Shamshir Barfar Zadan, for example. Then I saw, oh, most Persian battlefield accounts concentrate, for example, on this vertical strike. They say it should be vertical, it shouldn't go there, you should start like that. Then I saw a consistency here and there, again there, again there. And knowing Japanese swordsmanship, like Katori, I know that, um, you know, Persia by tradition or in, is, is a very traditional culture. You know, like Japan, I don't know how to explain this to you. It's not, it's a very different approach to culture. And I know it from intercultural studies. You see these techniques which are repeated again and again, and then you're shown in miniatures. And then, then I said, there should be something in the, into that, right? And also the archery. Back then, I didn't know that there were so many manuscripts on archery, which I encountered later. But I saw that their consistency of borut kesh, mustache draw, for example, they explained. Then they, mm -hmm. they explained eyebrow draw. They explained um, many others, right? Mm -hmm. We know that, for example, in, back then, before I went there, in Arab archery, which was translated into English, or in Kipchak archery, mm -hmm. or Turkish, you know, that they referred always to Persian manuals, which are very detailed. But no one knew which one, you know. And then I started to collect them for this lexicon. After I collected them, in the middle of my research for my lexicon, I found, for example, archery manuals. I found crucible steel manuals. I found this and this and this. Then I said, okay, um, let's go and try to delve into uh, uh, 
historical Persian martial arts. But I would like to say, what, which now, for example, in African martial arts, our colleagues are doing, okay, they have a continent, but I had a culture, which is Persia, Iran. But it's just like, I just said, okay, I need to find, find consistency. I need to find what it was being done. And I need to find out these type of things. And, and I had one advantage next to it, next to all these things. As an antique researcher, I have handled, when I say that, it's not that just is a wish, right? Thousands of antiques in my hands. Sure. And, and guy, you know that, what the difference it makes. Not that I just had them in my hands. I analyzed them, measured them. I uh, photographed them one by one. So, you know, and the mechanics of the weapons, because all the reproductions we have, um, well, what should I say? I think you know what I want to say. <laughs> the um, reproductions, right? Some, some of them these days can be startlingly good. Yes, yes. But, but, but a lot of them really don't feel like the ones in the museums. Some do, but most of them yeah. don't. And then, okay, in Persian, it makes another difference because sure. uh, uh, you can have a crucible still made, not as beautiful as in the past. It's still mm -hmm. made. Even if you get the balance right, you don't get the real pattern right. I mean, making a Nihonto, Japanese Nihonto, okay, Japanese, although they kept their tradition, some of the patterns, they cannot do it still, but making a Persian Shamshir the way they, was, they did in the past is a wishful thinking, right? No really? one can do that. No one can make a crucible steel the way they did in the past. They just make some small blades, but if you make a real curved blade, then it doesn't feel that way, or then the handle. But we did lots of research. For example, just recently we found out the adhesive material. We found out what they used, again, based on a manuscript, what they used to, to, you know, to glue that, the natural glue, as we mm -hmm. call it. We found out, I mean, just published an academic article. We found out the mechanics of the cross guard, that why cross guard was made that way, another academic article. So, you know, I just, I just want to say, because they are the real things and we do research on real weapons, Persian, I'm talking about Persian. It gives us lots of advantage on um, analyzing the mechanics of the weapons back then. So oh, that's, that, that's, I just want to mention this one. Yeah, I, I would agree. Like when I was getting, really getting into researching early 17th century Italian rapier, I went to the Wallace collection and the lovely David Edge, who I think he's just retired, but he was head of conservation then, then he became head of, um, no, he was head of arms and armor then, then he became head of conservation. He like opened up a bunch of cases and brought out the swords I was interested in and I could literally like hold them in my hand and lunge with them and, and just move them around and it was oh my god this is totally different and when I when I gave one of them to my friend who came with me and I said okay you stand like this and just pointed at me and I was going to approach like like they talk about in in the treatises suddenly for the first time in my life my body naturally took Capoferro's guard position with the weight on the back foot leaning back your arm fairly extended because this sword the sharp point just disappears when it's pointed at your face and you literally don't know where their sword is. So you have to go and, as the text says, find the sword, right? And you find their sword with your sword and it is very frightening because if you make a mistake, that sword's going straight in your face and you can't even see it, right? It, yeah, it changes everything. So I'm, I'm, I'm entirely with you in that, you know, one of, the, one of the critical moments in a historical martial artist's development is handling museum originals. Yes. It's really important. It's really sure. important. 
And, you know, and then I understand that, you know, for example, because, you know, once you work for museums, for example, as you did, for example, and the museums trust you and they open all these things. Another thing for us, for me, which opens is that many private collections open their doors for mm. you in yeah. Europe, United States or Russia, wherever. But, uh, I mean, as you know, many private collectors are also very cautious, uh, which, I understand, which you of understand why, <laughs> of course. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're normally wealthy people, but they're cautious, but we all know why, right? And yeah. so that's why they, it's also open for you. And then, um, you well, so that's what it's, you gain more uh, uh, knowledge on analyzing these antiques and help you a lot to understand the mechanics, right? Absolutely. Um, so you were getting into the historical um, Persian martial arts and... I mean, the last, the first time we met was in New Zealand about three years ago. Yes, yes, like three. That. Oh God, three yeah. years ago. Yeah, yeah, and and you were teaching classes on. I'm sorry. I'm what? What? How do you pronounce the the name of the art you were teaching? Because oh, Rasmapsar. Yes. Rasmapsar. There we go. Um, so you've been sort of creating a like a a school teaching this stuff. Yeah. How did how did that like I mean, I, 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 I mean, my idea of Razmavsar was, again, my idea of Razmavsar was and still is to teach, um, and my students know that, to teach them martial arts. That's my first approach to, to that. And mm. I, I mean, so everyone does it. Yeah, of course, everyone does it. My approach to Razmavsar is they are fighters and they can use weapons. That's what I look at it. So I never, I never want my students to call themselves fencers because this is not our tradition, okay. if I may say so. You know, I want sure. them to, to, have, uh, to, have, to consider themselves as fighters. The reason, Guy, I'm mentioning it, because uh, many people, I'm talking about my, my, my school, right? For example, when they come to Razmasar in the beginning, we only want to learn Shamshir and Sipar. You understand what I mean? Yeah. We don't want to do wrestling. That's the reason I'm saying this, right? <laughs> We don't want to do this because you get too close. You understand? Fury That's would the not approve. Fury you know? bases his art on wrestling. I mean, if you're yeah. going to be doing like proper armored and armed combat, you have to wrestle. Exactly. No you know, and then <laughs> you don't want to do this. And then I said, guys, yeah. listen, this is a martial arts organization. You need to do everything. And, and now it's established. People know that. But in the beginning, it, you know, they just didn't want to do this and that, right? And sure. then I said, guys, you cannot hear. You just need to. Or, you know, I remember... There was a guy in the back then. I want to learn Neze, meaning like spear. I'm interested right. in that. I said, listen, for example, I, and for me, it was very strange. I tell you why it's strange and why I said established martial arts. Listen, you need to go and do Kyukushin. Kyukushin has many katas. Many people don't know that because it's like Muay Thai, but it has 39 katas and mm -hmm. many. Okay. Okay, guys, excuse to all Kyukushin practitioners here, but you all guys know what I'm talking about, right? Many people in Kyukushin want to fight, right? And these 39 katas for them is... I mean, it's torture. <laughs> you know, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I love katas. You know, maybe you, in our channel, I always practice them all the time because yeah. I strongly believe if you don't master... I'm talking about Kyukushin. Katas, you cannot fight well. I strongly believe in it. And that, and I'm, I really... And as a fighter, I say that. As a fighter. You know, many people don't do it and say... So, but then, then... In Kyukushin, you don't have a choice. You need to learn them, 
Right? You cannot just say, I don't want to learn katas. You cannot do that. You do not progress to black belt and you cannot fight in those categories. Right? right. So, and I was used to it. Also, let's say in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, although it's a, let's say, modern art based on Japanese jiu-jitsu, on different, mm -hmm. you don't have a choice. You need to learn. You cannot say, I only want to fight from top position. I hate to be on my back. But they're going to evaluate you on your back as well. If you don't learn it, you're going to fail. And you cannot fight again in black belt category or in, in brown belt category. Or, I mean, let's stick to Wing Chun. Yeah. You cannot say and say Wing Chun has three four forms. And let's say, I only like Chum Q. Many people say I like the second one, Chum Q. But it's not your choice. You need to learn, and you need. And many people in Wing Chun, we don't want to learn weapons because it's not relevant anymore. But in Wing Chun, you don't have a choice. You need to learn Wing Chun weapons as well. So I came from this established martial arts mentality. That's the reason. Me too. So you see that. <laughs> me but me too. They, me too. You totally. know that. And then <laughs> yeah. they come and argue. I want to learn this. And I say, uh, "What do you mean you want to learn only this? You understand what I mean, guy?" I do. I do. I do. I, <laughs> you know? Okay. I, I have a slightly different perspective on it though, because. In generally speaking, yeah, when beginners come to the school, I they get taught the stuff that they've showed up for the class for. Like this is like basic level Fiore stuff, or this is like basic level rapier stuff, or whatever, right? But because of the kind of cultural background of how historical martial art, uh, how our martial arts used to be taught historically. So, for example, when Salvatore Fabris showed up to the court of King Christian the Fourth of Denmark. To to give the king his fencing lesson, the king would be taught what he wanted to know. And uh, you know, Signor Fabris would just do as he was told because in that relationship, the king was the king and Fabris was this you know, expensive foreign fencing instructor who had been hired to teach him, to teach the king. But the, the authority structure is completely different to the way it is in most, should we say, non-historical European martial arts schools, right? Or actually in history. Now, of course, a lot of modern um, historical martial arts schools are run along, say we say, Japanese hierarchy structure lines where the teacher is sensei and you do what sensei says. Or I run mine closer to what I think of as the more likely historical model where, like even in the 18th century, if I was teaching, um, you know, backsword to some officer, the, the master at arms in the 18th century was usually like a corporal or a sergeant and they're teaching lieutenants and captains and majors and colonels, right? So there's no question who is actually in charge. So it, it's, just, it's, a, it's a very different sort of, it's a very different cultural hierarchical perspective yeah. on, I mean, fair on, on enough. the role of the martial arts teacher. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. But we should never forget that Persian culture is Asian culture, West Asia. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, yeah, We should sure. never forget that. It's West Absolutely. Asia. For example, if yeah. you go to Zurhane, House of Strengths, it's completely hierarchical. The, okay. Where you should stand is determined by the number of years you have been practicing the art. Okay. The, what you are wearing is determined who starts, what you, how you bow, everything is predetermined. Mm -hmm. We should never forget, Persia again, guys, okay, in today's diplomatic circles is West Asia, not Middle East. Call it West Asia, Middle East, whatever you want. Persia, Iran, is located where? Asia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> so it's you know traditional. It has these elements yeah. to it, right? Absolutely, and and it is totally in. A, it would be inappropriate for a beginner to show up in one of my classes when I'm teaching longsword and say, "Well, actually, I'm just here to do polax." Yeah, and be like, "Well, okay, go away then, because I'm doing longsword today." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you know. <laughs> But no, I learned it, you know, to be honest with you, mm -hmm. I learned it, you know, I, uh, now in Razmav, so let's put it this way, I'm not as, uh, if I may use this word, I'm not as strict as I used to be, right, in Razmav, yeah. so I so, need to say that, right. <laughs> so yeah. what is your, what, what is your, I mean, most of my listeners will probably never have experienced Razmav, so what, what is it like? Tell us about it. Uh, we practice basically in Razmafsa, the main weapon set we practice, which also we see a lot in miniatures, and there are also lots of descriptions in different, different battlefield accounts. We, we, we concentrate on three main weapons. Shamshir and Separ, which is uh, this curved sword. Actually, to be honest, that's what we are going to do it later on. I'm not going, Razmafsa for us, for me, is a cultural sphere of arms and armor used by Persian warriors. The reason we haven't concentrated on ancient ones because we are going to completely reconstruct it like people do it on Viking or people experimental archaeology. Mm -hmm. We haven't done that. The reason is, you know, no, guys, Razmafsa is not only about Timurid, Safavid, starting from that period. We are going to have a consistency later on. We are going, we are also doing, we are going to show it soon, experimental archaeology with even bronze sword because I analyzed many bronze swords. But okay, just these type of things. We do Shamshir and Separ, which is the curved one with the shield, or as you call it, buckler, but we have buckler. a small one, we have a medium mm -hmm. size, and big ones. Then this is the first thing our guys learn. I put many techniques into combination just to, that people remember their different techniques. Then we do also Neza, which is the, which is the spear, or I mean, it's a cutting spear. It's like Naginata, right? It's not yeah. like only this. And we do that, and also very few techniques also combined with the shield, but mostly without. Then we do also then a shield or separ with a hanjar, which is a curved dagger, right, in combination. Mm -hmm. These are the, these three main weapon sets we have. We have also others. We have also, uh, these are these three. And then next to it, in each level they train, they need to be accomplished wrestlers and grapplers. When we mean right. accomplished wrestlers and grapplers, Okay, guys, for those of you who practice freestyle wrestling, Greco-Roman or Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or catch wrestling, whatever, that level, right? Yeah. It's not just that you know some throws. Uh, in my system, they need to be accomplished wrestlers because in Persian tradition, even today, wrestling is king, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, wrestling is just not, I'm not saying now it's good or it's bad. No, guys, okay, now I'm back in also Kyukushin circles. So before a fight starts... Striking versus grappling. <laughs> I come from both sides, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not just saying because a guy asked me about, because, you know, this starts always again. Oh, you went back to striking. What's the reason? And um, uh, the, the thing is because Persian tradition is wrestling tradition and they need to learn wrestling, you know, very accomplished, on foot, underground and everything. And um, that's what I, I place a lot of emphasis on wrestling. Okay, pre-COVID, of course. No, they cannot do that. <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> of course not. 
And uh, then we have these combinations and these three sets of weapons. And then next, and, uh, and of course, excuse me, I forgot one important weapon, which is they need also to practice archery, of course. This is part of our tradition as well. Okay. And, uh, and then after that, then there are also other weapons which come into play. They, for example, these also, because Hanjar, for example, is always held in reverse grip. But then after that, we have card, which is like a knife. Is also with a shield again, which is held like that in a forward grip. Then we have also other heavier weapons. And then later on, few of us have that because it's a question of money, of course, investment. Is I would like them to learn at least to make experiments with armored fighting, put yeah. armor. But um, as you know, Guy, uh, armor, buying an armor is always uh, <laughs> something which is, I mean, we, okay. you can. I mean, Let's put it like this. Um, my armor costs nearly twice what I paid for my car. Yeah, you see. And yeah, that, that says a lot about my priorities. And my car was not a brand new BMW, but you know, still, yeah, um, uh, good armor is not cheap. Yeah, and the, the, you know, for, the, for that reason, I want them to do it, but I mean, I cannot ask them to do it because many people told me, Manusha, we don't have money to buy an armor, which I completely understand. But what we can, you know, I mean, what should you do? I mean, it's clear. I mean, and many people, let's face it, guys. Oh, they need to invest. Many people have other priorities. They have kids. They have other, you know, I mean, sure. I, mean I fully understand. You cannot say, okay, now invest, you know, save money for for an armor, right? I mean, for, I mean you cannot do, I cannot do that. Uh, by, by the time you save the money, you're too old to use it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the reason. But, you know, I mean, armored fighting, some of us have it, you know, have armor, yeah. so they do it, they make it, yeah. it's important. This is also part of our tradition. We also, for higher levels, I don't want them to do it in lower levels, but as I'm sure you know that, I also have um, cutting test requirements to understand the mechanics of it, right. right, of course. But then again, I mean, I would like them to do that. I'm a bit, I'm not a big fan uh, I do it a lot. I do a lot of cutting tests, which I'm, you can see that on our uh, channel. But um, I don't want many of my people to do cutting tests, but I think you know why, right? I mean, I'm not a... You need to be... You know, I don't want to make it... Everyone should do cutting tests. People should be really good at handling weapons before they move and even cut uh, tatami omote or hard grain tatami omote. They need to know what they are doing, right? And that's the reason. Yeah, I, I I encourage my students to, you know, cut stuff. But then, you know, I'm, I'm a woodworker. I've been cutting things since I was a little boy. And there's not, it's not fundamentally different cutting a sword, you know, with a sword against a target than it is using an axe to chop down a tree. The, the way you do it is different, but you're getting the blade to behave in a certain way on this particular substrate. So you change what you're doing to make that change in the substrate occur. It's... What once once the blade is is an extension of your will, then it all sorts of things become a lot more straightforward. But it's something that people who are not accustomed to blades really have to put some time into practice. I, I get them started usually with cooking, because yeah. because if you know if you're if you're decent in the kitchen and you can like chop vegetables and whatever, you are used to controlling a sharp blade and making it make big things into small things and just applying that fundamental understanding of how sharp stuff works yeah. to longer sharp things it's it's a, it's a useful kind of segue into it 
I mean, what I found out in cutting is, I mean, okay, there are different curves with shamshirs, right? Sure. There are one, some of them which are really curved, extreme curves, and cutting with them is very, very dangerous. Because Why? the curve, after the cut, right, you need to know what to con- how to control it because it keeps going, right? Yeah, and this so. turn, right? After ah, you cut this right. turn. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You hit your, you'll, you'll hit yourself with the point. Oh, yeah. Like that. Oh, jeez. Yes, of course. Like that. Would. And another yeah. thing, for example, if you do this cut, right? And then, yeah. you know, this recovery, which we learn is this and you turn, right? You yeah. turn like that. And with a highly curved sword. <laughs> You're going to hit yourself. <laughs> yes, of course you are. That's the problem. <laughs> that's, you know, that's my problem with highly curved swords. Listen, if yeah, they do okay. it with the naser, with the cutting spear, I don't have a problem with that. Right, it's like, easy, if, yeah. Right? Chop, 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 chop. right, it's not a problem. I don't have a problem with that. Or if they do this cutting, like I don't know. But this highly curved blade, it's always after you cut. And sometimes it's like a snake which cuts and then you see these things just starts to vibrate. And, yeah. you, know, and you need to <laughs> control it. For example, katana is curved as well, but the curve of katana is not like that, right? It's very gentle and, and the blade is pretty stiff. Exactly, it's stiff. So it's, yeah, it's not steeply curved, and it's pretty stiff. I, I've done I've done some practice with like heavily curved, so eighteenth century European blades. Okay, and and it's it is it's it's kind of strange. Once you once you start thinking about the point, everything gets a lot easier because it's all about putting the point where it needs to go. But the point isn't at the end of your arm like the extension of your of your wrist it's curved back so you have to kind of feel where the point is and then then you can make you can make those turns and stuff and it's fine because you're not you're not going to hit yourself with your own forefinger because now your forefinger is connected to your point you can you can make those turns and there's actually there's space for your body inside the curve of the sword and you can yeah. just bring it and, and it's lovely you can sort of basically sit inside this this cage of steel that you're making with this curved blade but yeah. But, but you have to be able to extend your nervous system down to the point of the weapon to be able to do that safely. And that, that takes a lot of practice. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that, that was only my main concern. Yeah, sure. Because many of our guys also prefer really curved blades, right? I mean, for training. Wow. They cut beautifully, not... yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah. And another thing, as you know, I mean, as far as in our field is concerned, Unfortunately, you know, really sharp shamshis are made, but quite expensive, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, and and that's again. I mean, I'm not. I mean, they're not made of like uh, crucible steel, but still quite expensive because there is not a huge market for it. So right. you need to have it custom made, and then people, you know, they have one already custom made for training, like a training shamshir, and now they are going to have one custom made for cutting. Then we have another issue again as we started again, right, in the yeah. beginning. European swords is established market now, right? Because there are many yeah. practitioners, and it's like the mechanics of the market, as we all know. The more right. uh, you know, demand is there, the more you can you know just respond to it and have a supply. But this here, we don't have this um, structure yet, right, in sure. our field. Yeah, I, I, I have a, a custom-made longsword for cutting, and yeah. yeah, again, that costs more than my car as well. Because yeah, I, I, yeah I, I don't care about cars, but I really care about swords. <laughs> yeah, you see, you see, guy. Again, we, you know, you know, I think one, one, you know, for example, just to have one thing, you know, 
maybe for your viewers, because I also train, as you know, before COVID, I was in a member of an MMA club here. And then mm -hmm. I just say one thing. This gentleman mm -hmm. was such a good fighter. He came to me and he said, oh, he saw, he watched me. And nobody didn't talk about that, that I do also this historical martial arts. He would like to mm -hmm. give it a try. And I said, yeah, you could. But you know what he said? Well, I don't have any money. That's the reason I do MMA. I could hardly afford my gloves. Right. I felt so bad because he was such a good fighter. We always trained. Young guy, yeah. like 21, right? Yeah. Very, I mean, he's now a very good fighter, MMA fighter. We still have contact with each other. And, you know, that day when he told me that, you know, because, no, because before he said that, he said, yeah, you don't need so much money. You, for example, a fancy mask and this, these normal things. And he said, no, he, can, he hardly could afford his uh, right. MMA gloves. <clears throat> you know, and there you sit and feel and, uh, that I felt so bad. I cannot explain how I felt, right? And then you realize why they do go to these, uh, <laughs> the board in the beginning of, I want to say, established martial arts. Because yeah. one of the reasons is also, it's not so prohibitive. To, it doesn't cost that much for them, right? Yeah. And um, one, one way I found around this is when I moved to Helsinki in 2001, within like three months, I'd found a space and I had a permanent training facility, right? Oh. And the deal was my students could leave their swords and masks and things in the cell. But if they ever got dusty, then they got moved onto the beginner's rack. So... What happened there was students, you know, if, if they took a few months off training, their sword got dusty, ended up on the beginner's rack, anybody else could use it. But when they came back, of course, they could just go, oh, my sword's over there and take it and, you know, put it back on their own rack. And it was, it was you know, they never lost ownership of it. But the point is, without, ha I didn't have any money to go buying like 20 steel long swords for my students because, you know, I, I started my, my school on a shoestring. But, Within about a year and a half of this, we had enough steel swords and enough masks to equip a beginner's course of like 20 students with steel swords and masks. And that meant that people who did not have the money for the weapons, but did have the money maybe to pay for training at our kind of reduced student rate, they could train for years without actually having to shell out three, four hundred euros for a sword. Yeah. Right? So yeah, there, there, there are ways around the problem, but I, I totally recognize it. Like for a lot of people, and, and particularly with, with you, you want them to start quite young because then they have more time you know, before they have kids and jobs and careers and everything else. They have more time to train. Um, but they tend, because they're not, they don't have decent jobs, they don't have any money, so they can't afford the gear. But if you can get them training that young, they, they're pretty skilled, and eventually they save up the money and they buy a sword or whatever. And then 10 years later, when they are, you know, employed and what have you, then they can buy better gear. But it's... It, it, I didn't realise when I did it, but the the delightful consequence of, of that policy I instituted straight at the beginning when I got the permanent training space it meant that people who did, couldn't afford the weapons could still train. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Um, Very good idea, yeah. Yeah. Hey, anyway, if it's dusty or rusty, anyone can use it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, of course, it motivates people to come back to the south. Um, you know. <laughs> and, and the thing's also, most people who, you know, 
who get into historical martial arts, they're really keen and they love it and they care about the swords and everything. And they understand, they want people to be able to do this. And so they're okay with their equipment being used while they're not using it. And if they're precious about it, it's like, oh no, this, this sword is my precious, my baby. They don't keep it in the cell anyway. They take it home and they you know, cuddle up with it in bed or whatever they do. Because, um, you know, it's... Yeah. But, cause, yeah, as, long, as long as the policy is like completely explicit and everybody knows what's going on, it's, it's, it works pretty well. Um, so you, you took a break from historical martial arts. I mean, yeah, I mean, the break, I mean, I didn't really take a break because my guys were doing it, were doing Razmafsari. I was only talking to these guys. I concentrated because I had a very, very demanding task, which I did in Tehran, Iran, under Shihan Nazari. And then I had also, I had also fights with him. He fought with me. I mean, Shihan Nazari is a heavy, super heavyweight in Kyukushin circles. <laughs> so... He, he's a super... Okay. Um... This is a podcast, so there's no video. And by my recollection, you're not you're not exactly a giant. Um, no, I I, <laughs> I used to weigh. I mean, I, I'm not a giant. I used to weigh. Uh, let's put it that way. Before I started, because it was one of your questions, possibly I can say, I used to weigh 85 kilos in kilos, right? But I'm right. not that tall. But uh, because of that, and 85 kilos gave me tremendous strength. Because uh, I don't know, I don't want to brag, but especially in wrestling, and everyone yeah. when I wrestle, when I do BJJ, or also when I do striking, people always say, "Oh, you have so much strength." But what I did, I started uh, to for prepare preparation for second dan. I trained like every day, striking, wrestling. I was a member of MMA club, mm -hmm. trained all the time, and then went and did my second dan, which in Kyokushin passing one dan is really the. People know that. I mean, they, oh God, I had yeah. like three-day test, and then I oh got and fighting this, that. I'm very physically very demanding. I trained on that. Then immediately I told them I'm going to do my third dan, and then then I started to do that. For third dan, I started, you know, and then my this solo training started because of COVID. So I started train. I train. I have been training like three to four hours a day or every day. That's and, a lot. Without break, even Saturday, Sundays. That's why on our videos you can see it on our video uh, YouTube channel. And I do, again, katas and katas, also mostly many Japanese weapons which come from Kenjutsu. Also, I do this uh, Bing Chun and all these things. Uh, grappling, I can't do grappling. I can do this traditional judo where you have your belt and you try to, against a yeah. tree or, you know, and then, or uh, railings and try to do different. But I do it. I keep doing them. And uh, so I trained that. And um, I also started a diet. Uh, first, I cut all sugar completely yeah. that's a good then, start yes that's a very uh, then, good start yes cut completely then i cut carbs completely so mm. for uh, for one year i have been on a diet i know i know guys it's not very good i know but i dropped from 85 86 kilos in spite of training so much uh, i dropped to 76 wow that's pretty good Yes, and, but in spite of lots of training, and I because I have, uh, but I have a very careful diet. It's not that just cut them. I have all this protein intake. I have vitamin intake. I have this and that. So, but I'm going uh, not now. I'm keep going it like that. But I will gain again four to five kilo muscles. Five, mm -hmm. yes, before I go to pass my um, third dan. <laughs> because in third dan I need to fight against super heavyweights, and I want to have five more kilos <laughs> around me. Yes, you really do. <laughs> um, how how heavy is a super heavyweight in Kyokushinkai? Uh, 
is uh, they're mostly 120, 25 kilos. Fuck! So you're but we are talking about muscle. But we are talking about muscle mass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For example, yeah, I fought against uh, Shihan Nazari. Yeah. Shihan Nazari is uh, two meters five. Wow. And he is 125 muscles. He can see muscles all over the place, but his specialty, he knees you. So he grabs you, knees your face with that, yeah. you know, that's his specialty. Ouch. And even with that extra five kilos, you are giving away 50% of, yeah. of your weight. They have a 50% weight advantage on you. That okay. is, that's yeah, outrageous. I, and then, 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 I mean, in contrast to MMA, at least you can bring the guy, hope to bring him down to rest on the ground. Yeah. In Kikushin, there is bare knuckle, there is no throws allowed. But you, if for those guys who think you can take Shihan to an MMA match, he's a black belt in judo as well. So, so, so far for taking the guy down, right? And he's so super fast. And another technique he does, which really surprised me in fighting against him, his specialty is axe kick and hammer kick. Oh, God, that's a horrible kick. And that's, you know how he does yeah, it. He's yeah. that height, right? So, and basically oh. he can kick you down into ground, right? I mean, this is what he Control. does, right? Yes. <laughs> you know? Wow. So, and, I, and another thing I really... You know, it was for me meditation because I know, I know some people don't like it. Kikushin is a very traditional style. It's Japanese traditional yeah. style. Sure. Very hierarchical, but I enjoy it, right? Some people don't like it. I enjoy it because it's very disciplined. You know, I mean, for example, it's very hierarchical, very disciplined. You just train, you don't argue, and uh, people respect you, for example. And then it's established body. That's what I wanted yeah. to say in the beginning. Is it, for example, if I do my second dan black belt, is worldwide and yeah. in ten million uh, members of Kyokushi is in Japan. Ten million. Yeah, ten million. Bloody hell, that's yeah. a big school. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So you see, you see what we are, what we are, what we are talking about, what dimensions we are talking about, mm. and these are the these are the dimensions we are talking about about established. As I wanted to say in the beginning, and I used yeah. a very unhappy word of my father. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, that's what I wanted to say. Established sure. in a sense that, okay, they have been around, but then again, I, and you know, to me, what I did with uh, with uh, Japanese martial arts or with Kyokushin, which I also had it in wrestling, but wrestling in Iran, not wrestling here, because I also mm-hmm. practice MMA and wrestling here. Wrestling in Iran is very traditional. The wrestling what, what mat. Is it like? It is, you know, although they practice Olympic wrestling, right? It is very hierarchical, very traditional because wrestling, for example, for them is like a sacred art. Mm-hmm. It's like a noble art. You know, for example, wrestlers in Iran, as I kept saying, the whole society. For I just give you an example. One of our wrestlers was wrestling a couple of years ago, and he was not very nice, right? And he was against, I think he was American wrestler when Americans were visiting us. And he was not very nice. He was just acting not very nice. And then mm-hmm. the commentator said, we really hope he will lose this match because he doesn't deserve even to be called a wrestler. We are now from now for the American wrestler. Hopefully he's going to win. Wow. You see, because, you know, a wrestler needs to show moral qualities. Absolutely. You know, and this is, in a high, wrestlers in Iran, Olympic wrestlers, they come also mostly from traditional wrestling arts. 
they have to fulfill this idea of Javan Mardi. Really, you cannot just be try to win so at all what's costs. That, what's that word again? Javan Mardi is like chivalry. It's like bushido, okay. Persian okay. bushido, and they, they still practice. So you know, and then again, it's not only because of historical martial arts. Also, when I came here, to, you know, in Germany, you know, and and I was in member of many wrestling clubs, and sometimes I didn't like them because they completely lacked this uh, Persian-Iranian mentality. And I just said, these guys only wrestle on the mat. They don't have any honor. Like, I cannot, okay. I cannot explain it. I, I, have, I, I, I can give you an example. Okay. Um, one time we were doing this tournament at the end of a long seminar of, of my school. And it was a, like a full day tournament and Fiore's weapons. But you could choose wrestling, dagger, sword, spear, polax, right? And you didn't have to have the same weapon as your opponent. Okay, you could, you know, the basically the the the, the fighters who were going to fight agreed what weapons they would fight with, and the you know, the the idea was, you know, you could choose anything. And one guy chose dagger when his opponent had a polax, right? Because he was like, I got to see if I can do this. Okay, and at the end there were two prizes. Right. The second prize went to the person who won the most fights, kind of classic tournament victory. Right. The first prize went to the person who we took a vote of all the competitors and all of the spectators and whoever got whoever was elected as the person who best represented the spirit of the art. Right. That was first prize. Second prize, you just win the most fights, and both both those people got respect. You know, and 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 it was two different people, and it could have been the same person, right? But it's because you know if if you just want to win the fight, you should take the pole axe against the dagger. But if you want to actually challenge yourself and and gain renown, as is a thoroughly sort of medieval knightly attitude, right? You take the dagger against the pole axe because you know what. I'm going to give it a go. And in that actual match, the guy with the dagger actually took out the guy with the polax, which was really, wow. <laughs> nobody was expecting that, but it happened. Right. Wow. So, so yeah, I, I, I think, I think it comes down to, it's, it's the sort of the ethos of the martial arts, which is we know that what we do in the cell is not the fundamental truth of actual combat. No. Because no one, no one, no one's trying to kill each other. But what we have to train is the attitude that will get us prepared for the actual test. Whereas if you have like a sport where the idea is where, where really what you're trained to do is to win tournaments and competitions, then the 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 system by which you are evaluated is completely different. It's like, did you win the tournament or not? That's what actually yeah, matters. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, so yeah, it, 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 like, when we started, it was like, you know, to us both, martial arts is really one thing, and there's lots of dialects of martial arts, you know, but they're all dialects of a common language. Yeah, absolutely. And, you, you know, you asked me why I, uh, you know, went back, because, you know, I just found meditation in doing kyokushin katas, mm-hmm. which I train in the nature, 
Yeah. I trained when it was hailing, raining. It was minus 20, excuse me, minus 12 Celsius. The lake yeah. it was frozen. I trained on frozen lake and do these katas. It was really fighting. It's just meditation for me, you know, to go back mm -hmm. there. And it's just, I found, okay, during this COVID time, I found a new dimension by practicing katas and every day. I just right. found, I know it sounds very strange, I, in the nature, I always have almost the same thing, be it very cold, be it very hot, always wearing the same thing, almost, right? And training all these katas and then becoming one with nature, feeling good about it. Then I realized, and then on ice, I did the katas and then it felt different. In the, in the in water, I did it. Then, you know, every, you know, on grass and every every yeah. surface felt differently. Then all of a sudden I realized one thing, oh, it's so beautiful. It's like a meditation for me. You know, Absolutely. because, you know, one thing which I always want, you know, I didn't, you know, I, guy, I cannot explain it to you. Oh, I won the fight. I mean, it's like ego driven. Who cares? I was, yeah, you know, who cares? Yeah. Exactly. And I was away from this mentality. I was yeah. just myself, my katas and the nature and the birds all around me close to that lake. And that's yeah. it. And it's something which I could have never, ever found out, you know, just before COVID, right? <laughs> just, <laughs> yeah, and then, yeah, yeah. I cannot explain it to you. And then, you know, the guy said, oh, Manu when COVID is over. I think we talked about it as well. And I had so many invitations after COVID. So I don't know if I want to go, go to events and teach. And he said, what's wrong with you? I said, I was just training in the nature. I cannot explain <laughs> it to you. I just, it's just no, something. I, 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 absolutely, I absolutely get it. it it's, um, uh, we don't get snow very often here, but the last time we had like proper snow, I, I stripped down to my shorts and went outside and I did long sword forms in the snowstorm. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I wasn't out there for very long. I'm not stupid. I'm not getting frostbite or dying of exposure or anything. But, you know, five, ten minutes of swinging a sword around with no clothes on in a snowstorm, it's... <laughs> it, 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 yeah. <laughs> and yes, there is video because my wife came and took video. <laughs> I, and 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 I am I am open to bribery about putting it on the internet. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's 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 yeah. No, I, I actually I remember a long time ago. It must be about nineteen ninety nine. I think it was. Uh, my friend Stevie Fick, who who teaches historical martial arts in California, I was staying in Finland, and he came over to Finland to visit with his wife, and we went off to the summer cottage, and it was sort of. June in Finland, so beautiful, long, light evenings. And, you know, we'd go swimming in the lake and then come out and do sword forms on the rocks. And it was just, it's, it's, it's magic. It is, it is absolutely magic. And, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say what you say about forms because, like, one of the things I do whenever I like, recreate a historical martial art from the sources is if the source itself doesn't have forms or kata, I create them. Yeah. Because I don't see how you can train properly without them. You know, a guy, you know, that's what I did in Rasmus. So I put techniques together in forms mm -hmm. or in katas, as you say. Sure. You know, I, you know, the, you know, the guy comes to us and, okay, let's just, if I may, just away from Razmafsar, because I, as you, many guys know, I, I also do lots of, every Kyukushin practitioner does boxing and Muay Thai. You have to. 
you know, let's say you don't like katas. Okay, you go into boxing. Let's talk about, you know, when I was in the United States, I was in boxing team and wrestling team. So when you do boxing, okay, holding jab to the face, the first boxing combination you learn, jab, hook with the left, clap, jab, and then cross. That's the first combination you learn. It's a form. It's a form. It's then a you practice form. it all the yeah. time, all the time. Then right, they correct form. you. The second, jab to the head. People, Americans know that. Guys, boxing in America, jab to the head. You go down, jab to, you know, to the belly. Then you cross. Second. Then another. And, you know, in American boxing, which is not only American, because I learned it there. So, or else in Germany, it's the same. But Americans are very systematic about this. Is you learn up to 100 forms of different combinations. Right. And guy, if this is not kata, what is? Of course, it's, of course, it's plastic kata. I mean, <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's, it's, you know it's, Kyokushin guys come. Oh, I don't want to do these thirty-nine katas. Then they go to, in the combat training. They say, you grab him, you knee him, you go back, back kick, then you punch here, then you and do it all the time. So, is this no kata? No, this is not kata. <laughs> How <laughs> is it is not this? kata? <laughs> exactly. What? Muay Thai the same. You go to Thailand, you know, when I trained with all these Muay Thai guys, Thai guys, again, yeah. they just, again, combinations, katas. So please show me one martial arts, one, the only difference is longer katas, shorter katas. That's it. Right. Show me yeah. one, Kai, show me one martial arts without katas. Even wrestling, wrestling, put the hands up, put your head down, grab him here, put him in a position, then you can pick him up. Yeah. Right? So what is it's this? This is, this is kata. Thank you very much. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> it is kata. <laughs> and actually, in, in, in Japanese swordsmanship, kata usually refer, more commonly refers to a pair drill that has that yeah. set form. And then you have variations on it. And yeah, like, so you know, when I'm teaching um, one of our forms, it, our, our forms tend to be a series of techniques strung together. It's not a fight. It's a whole series of different techniques strung together so that you have a kind of a, a memory palace to store all this material right yeah. and so we do this is the application now we do it alone in the form then here is the next application and then we do it alone in the form and we build it up application by application so everybody knows okay this step is so you can get to this angle to hit them in the face or this step is because our school is only this big and if we don't put a turn in here you're going to run into the wall Right, so some some steps are just to keep the form a certain size. Some are for developing attributes, like okay, we might have like a sword flourish where the sword does like four different things, and that's not supposed to be a series of actions. That's a handling drill to teach you how to manipulate the weapon, right? But as so long as the student understands what the purpose of each of these actions is, it's it's useful practice. I mean, and and then once you've got it, you have like a zip file for the whole system in your head. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And then in times like this, what we have, we are having at the moment, you can train on your own. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I have always trained on my own. Right. And, you know, to the point that in 2019, I was, you know, I, I created these online courses. And in 2019, I put together an online course to teach people how to train on their own. Right. And then literally six months later, we're all in lockdown. <laughs> it's like, like, I told you people, you need to know how to train on your own. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Funny, yeah, it is true. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, actually, you know, and I, I have, I've just finished writing a book on solo training. Uh-huh. So to teach, to teach people who don't really understand what it's about, how to do it and um, how I, how I visualize it and how it fits in with oh, like training as a whole. So uh, I'll be delighted to send you like an early copy of it if you want to have a look. Absolutely. I would Excellent. love to. I would love to. <laughs> Splendid. Okay. Um, now, I, I see we're running like close to time. I, are you pushed for time? Are you? No, I'm not. Okay. So- okay. You, you don't have 17 more articles to write. And- <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so um, there are a couple of questions that I tend to ask most of my guests. And the first, I always hesitate to ask you because you, you seem to have done an awful lot. But what is the best idea you haven't acted on? Oh, yes. I, I, uh, prac- I started to, uh, because of a... I started to uh, learn long-distance swimming under two coaches, and at the same okay. time, I started to learn diving, right? Then yeah. I went up and passed my open water in diving license. Then right. I want, I know, I mean, because my wife always says, because she was my diving buddy, why do we do all these things? But we did that. Then I said, okay, we need to be ice divers. Which my oh, God. wife, oh, God. Re- you know, rejected. She said <laughs> yes. she's not going to do I'm, that. I'm, I'm with your wife on that one. <laughs> yes, and <laughs> she said, and I always wanted, but you need a body to, you know, and then you wanted to prepare for the test because, but I, you know, this is something I always want to do, one of the things I want to do. I know it sounds very strange. I wanted to get a license in ice diving and you're going to, also another thing I wanted to have a license on and I never finished it, uh, cave diving. But then okay. I realized cave diving is even more dangerous than ice diving. Yes. <laughs> because you can get stuck, right? Yes, then, exactly. And then, then that's it, over. Yeah, that's yeah. over, right? And then, uh, you know, many people ask me, why do you want to do st- stuff like that? I mean, I don't know. I just think it's like it's real, right? I, these are these two things I always wanted to do. And uh, yeah, these are these two things. And there are more. Okay. There are many more. Ice, ice, ice diving and cave diving. Okay. Well, you know, like one of the most amazing experiences of my whole life was having a um, flying lesson in a light aircraft. Wow. Right? It was just absolutely, like, it, it was stunning. I was high for like two days afterwards. <laughs> it was absolutely, an inc- wow. it was just incredible. And I would really, really love to just happen to find, you know, 15,000 pounds under a cushion somewhere so I could spend it on getting my private pilot's license. Because that that sense of being in an, in an alien environment, you know, we are, we are, we are earthbound people, right? We're not fish and we're not birds, but we can, I've done scuba diving once and it was, it was, had a similar kind of, oh my God, this is amazing feeling, yeah. right? <laughs> but I, I would take the air over the water, but I, oh, I, totally, okay. I totally get, it. and you know, I guess the, the flying equivalent of ice diving is probably aerobatics, yeah. Oh dear God, I would love to fly an aeroplane <laughs> doing aerobatics. So, <laughs> so tell you what, so tell you what, when you get stuck <laughs> under the ice, I'll come in on my seaplane and break it open for you. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>. right. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. Um, my, my last question is, somebody gives you a million pounds or dollars or choose the currency you like to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide. How would you spend the money? 
It's a really difficult question. I have been thinking yeah. about it because, you know, historical martial arts, um, you know, this is, you know, what we need in historical martial arts, I think, at the moment, and which I also really like that, you know, you your approach, I really love it, Guy, that you call it historical martial arts. This is the best approach to call it, right? Not you know, from this region, from that region, which is right. really lovely. Absolutely the best choice to make, really. And uh, what you know, I, I think, I think the first thing we we need to 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 have is just um, to have a research center, right? To have, you know, for example, I mm-hmm. I personally I can talk about our field. Uh, we have many many different manuals, not only on fighting, on sword analysis, on different types, on archery, and many things, right? How things were made, but you need for these type of things uh, budget and money. Yeah. And then these things. And then another thing, maybe we could have like a body of, uh, but you know, if you make a body of like organizing body of things, what then the start, the question starts, who's going to be the president, right? Yeah, it tends to calcify and it creates yeah. like, poli- yeah. it, cre- it creates political problems straight away. Yeah, yeah we know that all, right? When organizations, yeah. it's human things. And, and traditional martial arts are not free from that. We all know these games, sure. right? But I think, I mean, if I could, I would spend it on research, really. Mm. You know, like set, you know, set up research groups like we do at university. Okay, in our field, in any field is no different. I also work and do research for many academic journals in historical martial arts or sword analysis, weapon analysis. Mm. But these all, we all do it like with our own money, right? And with our own time, yeah. right? And you know how hard it is. For example, you know, just to give an example, we have hundred thousands manuscripts in Persian alone which need yep. to be, again, translated, worked on. And very often, you know, people, for example, misidentify manuscripts. I was talking to, uh, to, a, to a researcher, you know, for example, this person is talking about um, court rules, right? Mm-hmm. And it goes like 50 pages about rules in the court of one king. Then all of a sudden, one chapter is dedicated in how to, you know, conquer fortifications. Right, <laughs> and you say what? What? What is the relationship between court rules and conquering fortifications? But the problem, what I'm saying is this: people in uh, museums, they have in Persian, is a language where people wrote hundred thousand millions manuscripts we have, and then these court rules. Who is interested in court rules? No one, right? People, okay, and there are yeah. so many of them. But then when you find it, but in cataloging this, they go maybe 10 pages, 20 pages. Yeah. They don't see that. So what we need, at least I can talk about Persian. Same is in Japanese. I know that, that my colleagues who sure. do Japanese, they told me. So let's stick to Persian. So we need different people, different students, assign them, go through them, try to find out, okay, maybe it's not about, and we had, for example, one more thing is about cooking, a recipe mm-hmm. book. And one part talks about fighting and shooting with the bow. Wow! It's about cooking. Okay. It's a but, cookbook. But, but but this is this is how it is in in a lot of European yeah. as well. It's <laughs> you like see? you know, you're you're a rich person and you want a book and you want the book to have all the stuff you're interested in. And so there's a bit on sword fighting. There's a bit on making fireworks. And there's a bit on magic spells. And there's a bit on like animal husbandry. And there's a bit on you know yes. how to look after your horse and because that's what you like and and so you know a lot of our manuscript sources on historical martial arts are bundled in with yeah. other things that we thought why would you put those together but then all i have to do is look at my own bookshelves and if i imagine 
that, you know, any like four or five of those books will be put together into one volume. That's, that's basically what we're looking at. It's, yes. it's just how people, you know, they didn't have that many books. And so they would have them bound into reasonable sizes. And, you know, why would you, why would you keep them separate? They, they're all mine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I would have, I would have, you know, invested it in all cultures across our planet, but in research. The reason right. not in organize, organizing body, I think I explained to you why. Because <laughs> from yeah. experience, I know the problems there. But research, in my opinion, is a beautiful thing. And I know in every culture. And I'm sure, sure. I mean, European is not my field, but I'm sure in Europeans the same. In every sure. culture, there are still things to be discovered. I am 100% sure of that. In Chinese, in Japanese, European, African, name it. Persian, Ottoman, yeah. right. Now, currently, we are, I'm working with colleagues from uh, Turkish universities, and they have found many manuscripts, Ottoman manuscripts, which sure. they have never thought they even existed. So things like that, you know, and we need budget. We need money for this type of for research. Yeah. And, you know, just to make one example at the end, for example, business administration, law, or natural sciences. Okay, let's stick to business administration. We have lots of budget because we are company-oriented, right? Right. Right? Yeah. You yeah. see the difference. And, and, and honestly, in, in 50 years' time, no one is going to care about business administration in the 2020s. <laughs> but in 50 years' time, we will still be reading like 14th century Persian manuscripts on archery. Exactly. You know, that's why my colleagues always say, why do you put your 95% of your research on this stuff? Exactly what you said. Right. And I say, guys, no one cares what we write here now. <laughs> you know, I, that's the reason I concentrate on those areas. Exactly what you said, right? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Because they, they're always relevant. They will remain so. They're right. always beautiful. I fully agree. And that's why for that, but you know what we don't have? I cannot run to a company, to a law firm or to an investment company, give us money because we want to yeah. do research on Persian manuals. And what do you think? What are we going to say? <laughs> my, 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 my solution to this has been, you know, I, I have students and my students basically pay me to teach them how to fence with swords. But that money basically frees up my time to do the research. So my students are my grant giving body. But yeah, if, if some big company would like to go, oh, guy, here's a large chunk of money so you can go off and just do research. That would, that would be great. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that would be, be really nice because you know big companies tend to have an awful lot more money than you know a few hundred sword enthusiasts going. Oh, guys, <laughs> gu guys, my teacher, I'll pay him something. No, because you gave me some like a one million pounds or dollars, yeah. you know. Yeah. Just, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Which, which is a good start. I mean, uh, so, some people have have come up with plans that really require like a hundred or two hundred million dollars like we're gonna build this amazing center with like and but the idea really always is is how do, how do we get how do we find out what is really there in the sources and make it available so that interested people can find it that's the trick yeah excellent well Manusha, it's been an absolute delight talking to you as always um, thank you very nice much. nice to see you again Thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank you very Excellent. much. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Khorasani. You can find the episode show notes at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast. 
While you're there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind-the-scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash thesoardguy. Join us next week when I'll be talking to YouTuber and stage competent person Jill Berup, where, amongst other things, she corrects my pronunciation of Patreon, Patreon, or whatever. You're going to have to tune in to find out how she says it's supposed to be done. It's a fun and enjoyable discussion about the pitfalls of swinging swords around in movies, on stage, etc. So... Subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts from and you will not miss it. And while you're there, if you feel like leaving a review or rating the show, that would be fantastic. As long as, of course, you give it a really good rating and a thoroughly, blindingly beautiful review. It shouldn't take you too long and it does make all the difference in the world. So thanks for listening and I will join you next week.